Okay, Joan, I hit record. Awesome. I guess this means our conversations have now gone on the record. Apparently. So Joan's in the CTO studio with me today. I've been super excited. Joan has a very rich history in security space with uh, Sumo Logic, Auth0, boards of advisors, and currently the co-founder of ZeroWall, which we're going to get into in a little bit. My passion around the work that Joan is doing is this very important role that CTOs should own in their company, which is shielding their organization from present, future, near-future attacks, whether it's technology, whether it's process, whether it's regulatory and I was fascinated when Joan took me through a zero wall demo and I really felt aligned with your passion, Joan. So thank you for being with me. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about diversity. I know you're trans and I'm so excited to dig into that topic as well. And as I was thinking about today's talk, I kind of want to start with that, being trans in tech. It would be wonderful if you could just tell me about your journey. From 7 CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruyne, and you're in the CTO studio. So I, I guess we've got plenty of time, so I'll start at the beginning. So I realized that I was trans. Of course, I didn't have vocabulary for it at the time. I realized that I was different in this way when I was about five, six years old. And that was a knowledge that I carried with me pretty much in secret, except for a few people a few times throughout my life until I was about 35. And I tried to actually come out when I was 18 and I was at college. And in 1992, 93, people did it earlier than that. And I have nothing but the deepest respect and admiration for all of those who came before me. Because in 1992, it was too hard and I couldn't do it. So you're a child of the 70s. Yes. Just like me. Yep. And just for context, where were you when you were 18? Yeah, I, I grew up in, in the northeast of the U.S. in New England in a small village of Whitensville, Massachusetts, which was a one of the last New England mill towns. Whitensville was named after the Whiten family that owned the Whiten Machine Works which is where everyone in my town worked until just about mm. the year I was born is when it went out of business. And well, it, I guess it technically reincorporated in Burn, et, et cetera, but and exists still, I think, in some other entity with another name. But the machine works, the White and Machine Works, the White and family closed up shop, sold their property and got out of my town right about the time I was born. If people think of the Northeast and New England and Massachusetts as being liberal. And I grew up in a place that a friend of mine I grew up with many years later said, we might as well have grown up in Iowa. It was a very conservative and... Uh, and that's my impression of the Northeast. Is, is it, or maybe, and so I'm a foreigner, obviously, or I'm a naturalized American, I should stop saying mm -hmm. that. But the Northeast always, I thought, was brutally liberal. But then my wife and I did a bit of a road trip through the Northeast about seven or eight years ago and i was really struck by just had a bit of a conservative vibe it's an interesting type of liberalism in new england and i would say that it's there's some real sort of tension and con like inner conflict as a new englander and because 
there is in the history of New England, like the state of Rhode Island, religious freedom is really embedded in the culture of New England and the right to free speech and self-expression and self-determination and all these things. But there's also, it's also shot through with a real Puritan ethic at the same time. And if we think about the, like the Puritan church today, they're considered a very liberal church. They're very accepting of LGBTQ people and issues. That Puritan church has actually now it would be considered very liberal. But there's a, in the New England psyche, it's a lot about minding your own business. I used to say that my family motto should be, if we had a crest, it would be mind your own damn business. And it's a typical sort of New England attitude is, of course, oh, gay people should be able to have the same rights and they should be able to if you're, if you have a partner and you're gay, like they should be able to be on your health insurance. Of course. But do we need to have a wedding? Do we need to do, does it need to be so public? Can't we all just mind our own business? So it's in this setting, sort of ish, you're 18. You knew that you were, did, what did you say? Did you know that you were? I, I knew by 18, I knew I was trans. When I was younger, I didn't know what I was. I didn't have yes, the words for yes. it. I knew I was different, right? By the time I was 18, I knew I was trans okay, and I had the vocabulary for it. But what I didn't have was much in the way at all of role models. In the 90s, the only example of trans people I had were on talk shows and were being made a mockery of on, on shows like Jerry Springer, etc., and so there was not much of a hope of being able to transition and live anything a approaching a normal life. Mm. There was very much this attitude and idea that to follow that path would be to relegate oneself to probably sex work, et cetera, that there was no sort of place in legitimate society for those people. Mm. And, and so it, I, it was relatively easy for me to get scared of transitioning back in 92, 93. And so it was just something I, I sort of carried with me that, gosh, I wish things were different, but they're not. And I'm just going to have to deal with this. And for a long time, I was a pretty just unhappy person. Mm. I was, just, uh, I became really unhealthy. I mentally and physically, I did well in my career, thankfully, but I was really all I did. I really just focused on work. And I worked very hard and lots of hours and didn't really have much of a life and was pretty mm. unhappy. And household-wise uh, household and sibling-wise, I always wonder about that. I was an only child. I was an only child. My parents split when I was eight. And I pretty much lived with and was raised by my mom mm. from eight years on. I spent some time. My dad did not like completely disappear from my life. He moved a good distance and I did not see him often. By the time I was 13... I was working and that pretty much ended my parental visits with my dad. I didn't, whenever I was not in school, I was working. And so I was pretty much raised by a single mom. My mom worked in retail most of her life. We did not have a lot. And frankly, we were poor and in a poor town. I didn't, it, you kind of realize you're poor when all, when everyone's poor, when everyone, yeah. um, but as I started to get out into the world more, I was like, oh. So you developed a love for security, cybersecurity, hacking. Yeah. I, as a young kid, 
I showed a, I was just tremendously curious. My parents were constantly confounded by my curiosity and how I was asking about everything. I frustrated them to no end. I, one of the best gifts I ever got from anybody when I was about eight years old, my parents bought me a book and it was the biggest book I had ever seen. It was awesome. It was called Tell Me Why. And it had like answers to hundreds of questions and that they thought that might shut me up for a couple of days. And so I was just always incredibly curious. My first question when I see a new thing is how does it work? I just want to know how things work. And so I got when I was eight years old and my parents were in the middle of a, of a divorce. They very cleverly got me out of the house by sending me off to this computer camp that they had for for like disadvantaged kids. And again, I don't think any of us knew that we were disadvantaged, but we, we, I got to go to this computer camp and they lied about my age. They said, I, well, you're supposed to be 10 and I was eight, but they knew I would be able to keep up. So they, so I was the smallest 10 year old, uh, in this computer camp and that pretty much, I learned basic and logo and please, was, please, please tell me you learned logo on an Atari 800. Actually, no, it oh. was a, it was an Apple two C. Okay. Wow, man, we are close in that journey because Apple, Apple didn't quite make it to South Africa. In fact, my, my only rich friend had one, but I, I was in the kids with the Vic twenties and the, uh, I had a Vic twenty. So yeah. So I learned at the camp, they had a two C and it was beautiful. I still remember the way that it smelled it like there, that, that high grade plastic. And then when it would get hot, it had this, I still remember the way an Apple IIc <laughs> would smell. And we could not afford anything like a, I got a Vic 20 when even the other poor kids had a Commodore 64. I wow. still had the 20. Wow. And then I knew a kid, one of my friends got a Commodore 128. Dude, I was begging my dad to get me the 128 because he got me the Atari 800 XL. Yeah, And he was super concerned that I was going to be playing games all day. So he was very intentional, sat me down and just was like, listen, this is how it's going to be. And because really the way I got to know about computers was one of my buddies had an Intellivision gaming console and the, of course the arcades with all the games. And I was never the kid who actually played the games. I was the kid who stood next to the kids who played the games. I was just like, oh, this is so beautiful to watch. But when he finally got me my computer, he also bought me two books. And I was like, listen, I want you to learn about this computer. And he bought me two, the, the beginner and the advanced manuals. Joan, I devoured those books. And I started coding so vociferously that he got a little freaked out. Could you play some games? After all? <laughs> so one, one, <laughs> one Friday afternoon, I get home from school, <laughs> seven cassettes on my computer and it's just games and he's like <laughs> <laughs> so that was hilarious i had a somewhat similar i when i was about i want to say maybe 12 i got i found a bunch of the books that i had been reading were removed from my desk and there was a football and a stack of comic books in its place wow yeah, yeah. um i made it a point i never used that football I never threw it. I never kicked it. I never, I think I let, I think I let it sit there untouched for like a year, but wow. that computer camp set me up. I was, I started to develop this skill from a young age. By the time I was 18 and I went off to college, I actually 
I didn't major in computer science because I felt like I, I already like I wanted to learn something I didn't already know. And I majored in art and film and I tried to come out. It didn't go well. I wound up having to leave school for various reasons, uh, financial and I have some learning difficulties. And it's not not that I have difficulty learning, it's I have difficulty learning in the sort of traditional way. And I need to just do things for myself and put my hands on them. And I wound up leaving school around 21 and I got a job penetration testing. And I just, I developed a secure, a security career. I, I built a, as a, someone with a New England work ethic and a penchant for understanding how things work. I was able to build myself a really good career in security. And about 18 years later, when I was 35 years old, I had run out of sort of personal rope in terms of my ability to deny who I was and how unhappy I was. And so it was on my 35th birthday. I had become incredibly depressed and just miserable. And on my 35th birthday, I said, I'm going to do this transition because if I don't, I don't think I'm going to survive. Mm. I don't like, I'm just going to wind up just killing myself, being unhealthy and miserable mm. and working and just not taking any care of myself whatsoever. And, and so I, at the time, so this was 12 years ago, about approximately 2009 was the year I, I started to come out. The advice for trans people just 12 years ago. If I followed the official prescriptive advice at that time, I would have slowly transitioned over four years. And I said, absolutely not. I said, I'm going to do it. My birthday is in January. I made the decision on my 35th birthday in the middle of January. I said, I'm going to do it this year. And that was like, not unheard of, but really edgy and aggressive and against the official guidance. And it was right at this time, though, that we started to have kind of a split in the attitudes of how transition should be handled. And I was able to find a doctor and a clinic that didn't follow the old fashioned method, but they followed a newer protocol that was all around informed consent. And so under the old protocol, you had to prove a lot of things and you had to do what they call a real life test. No, no medical help at all. You have to just start wearing women's clothes, change your name and do wow. that for a year. And if you're able to keep it up for a year, then we'll give you pills. And so I was not, no part of me was ready to accept that level of authority. Over. And who was your ally in this? I didn't have one. This was me. At that point in my life, I was single. The whole process of coming out radically estranged me from, from my mother for a time. We're, we're close again, but we did not speak for a couple of years. It took her some time to come to terms with my transition. Again, now we're fine. We had a great conversation just the other day, but it was, it was work mm. on both ends to get to that. And so, yeah, it was very much a project of and for and by myself. Wow. And I had to do a lot of research on my own. And I found this doctor and clinic that practiced informed consent. And so rather than prove things, I basically had to read a 300 page document and, and say, and everywhere and say, yeah, I understand this might happen. Yes, I understand this might happen. Yes, I understand this might happen. Yes, I understand. And when all that was said and done, then he said, okay, now I'm going to write you a prescription for some hormones. And one of two things is going to happen. 
you're going to take these. And after a few weeks, you're going to say, I can't believe I've gone without this my whole life. Or you're going to take it for a few weeks and you're going to say, what the, this is not for me. Okay. And he's, that's our test. That's and our that, And at this point, does that conversation feel like you're collaborating with the doctor or is it, does it feel yeah, like? Yeah, he was great. He was great. Okay. He was a queer identified person, you know, doing almost missionary work in a way, wow. right? At the sliding scale cost clinic, that was the only place for hundreds of miles where you could go and get a hormone prescription without going through mm. all of the gatekeeping. Mm. And, and yeah, he was great. He was great. And, and so I began taking hormones in May of that year. I started therapy, psychotherapy. I started the hormones. I got my plan together and I came out in October of that year and had to take a couple weeks off of work and came back in November as Joan and have been Joan ever since. I remember the day I came out on LinkedIn to like my like 1000 connections or whatever I had on LinkedIn. Like I could change my name. And at the time, LinkedIn notified all of your like links of every little thing you did on LinkedIn. Like I knew this was going to go out. And so like I wrote a whole post and I did. And I remember coming out on LinkedIn and it was like, wow, I just came out to a thousand people all at once. I was so scared. I had no idea how people were going to take me if I was going to be able to keep my high paying job in tech, like I, I just had no idea. I just had no idea. And what surprised you the most, if you can dig to that memory? I think I got surprised on both sides. I had good surprises and nasty surprises. There, there were a lot of surprises. I was both surprised by how incredibly supportive some people were. And just by how incredibly ignorant other people were and like double tap on that, the like, people who are not ignorant in other ways, right? Like people mm. who are not like ignorant people yeah. would have this like, and I came to realize there's a thing that we don't realize we do. Almost every person seems to do this and it seems to be pretty cross-cultural. Mm. But I haven't met people from every culture. So I, I, but first thing that Westerners do anyway when they see someone's face is calculate if that person is a man or a woman. Well, that seems weird. Why? Because they're going to treat you completely differently. We have completely different set of etiquette for men and women. You're going to greet them differently. You're going to expect them to greet you differently. Like mm. everything that mm. flows from that interaction is gendered. And most people do this so unconsciously, they have no idea. When someone looks at an androgynous person, I think this is becoming less normal now, but the vast majority, like you look at an androgynous person and the job one is to place them in one of these buckets so that I know whether to he or she them. So I know whether to ma'am or sir them so that I know whether I should offer that offer to open the door or not, whether I should write all of these things, all of these norms and habits that we have are bifurcated. And so when you go to interact with someone in Western culture, it's essential that you gender them before the interaction begins. And as someone who, because of my neurological differences, I pay a lot of attention to facial expressions. And so I meet people and I watch them. What do I do? What do I do? And it was really illuminating in one case where I encountered someone who clearly had some real mental health difficulties, but it was a really illuminating encounter for me because they were very blunt. They said, I can't figure out what you are. You're freaking me out. I can't figure out what you are. You're freaking me out. 
And I'm like, hey, no problem, man. Let me. And it's, I bet there's a thousand people who felt that way. He's just the one who doesn't have the filter. He's the one who said it out loud. And so that really surprised me. And, 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 the, and there's a difference there between clumsy and ignorant and asshole. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so there's someone asked me once when I first came out at work and they had, I had to do this, ask me anything. You got to do what you got to do. So in order to not be a spectacle, I had to be a spectacle first. And so someone asked me, what happens if we mess up? If we, we still yeah. call you your old name or we say, he, I said, I, people are going to make some mistakes here and there. You've all, I had worked there for nine years. I said, you've all worked for me with me for nine years. I expect you some mistakes are going to be made. And then I said, I think, though, if you're like the last person in the building still making that mistake, then we might have a conversation. <laughs> and wow. and then sure enough, nine months go by and everybody else picked it up pretty quickly. But there was this one guy who just kept making a mistake. And it's that's interesting because everyone else has managed to stop making that mistake. Yeah, I had a I have a friend who transitioned and my my kids know him and. Yeah, it's been a fascinating conversation to go from her and she and to he and him and them. And it's, it's, yeah, there's something that happened. There's something you have to deal with inside yourself about it. And it's undeniable. Like you, you can placate the person as much as you want, but ultimately there's the change that has to happen inside of you with how you view that person. And so for my children, we sat them down and we explained the whole thing. And for them, it's okay. What's a really interesting thing, and this is, I've talked to lots of other trans people and I don't want to speak for all of us, but I'll say it seems to be a pretty universal experience. A few years after transition, when we've settled into our new selves, we don't, it's not a huge part of our lives. Mm. It's not something mm. I, I don't spend hardly any time in the day at all thinking about the fact I'm trans until one of these conversations comes up. It's not, it's not a huge part of my life. I'm yeah. who I am now. I'm happy. And I just live my life. And, and so what's really funny to me is like cisgendered people who are really uncomfortable with transition will say loudly and repeatedly over and over again for years on end. Wow. You guys, you trans people make such a big deal out of gender. And I just laugh my ass off because it's not, no, not at all. What did you call did you say cisgendered? Yes. So trans, right? And cis are two Greek, right? Transgender. You are a different gender than you were assigned at birth. Cisgender. You are the same gender you were Got assigned it. at birth. Got it. One of the things we do at seven CTOs is we do an assessment of organizations based on their tech people spend and team sizes. And that gives us a being in this, be having done this now for 10 plus years, I've spoken to probably thousands of CTOs and tech organizations. And so we've built this model. And one of the things which I, which when I chatted with you yesterday, I touched on was we ask our CTOs who are subscribing to our model to really address diversity early on yeah. earlier than they think they should. Yeah. So when we do like the red, green, yellow assessment, it's always red. I love the answer, which is, Oh no, I don't have a, I don't have an issue with this. I, to me, people are people and it's all cool. And I'm like, dude, you on you're red, you're a flaming red on this box. So as far as diversity goes, how do you see this in the engineering space? Yeah, it's a mess. And I mean that in not necessarily an all bad way. It's a mess because there are 
I think we're in a time of transition. I think that tech was a real difficult place and it still is, but it's changing. And so when I say it's messy, it's yeah, you're going to get, you're going to apply to three different companies and probably be treated three different ways. Mm, messy as in don't yeah. expect, there's not a global SOP for this. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got some companies that are working to very proactively address it. You've got other companies that are avoiding it at all costs. You've got companies that are being dragged into it and they're, they're trying, but they don't really want to. And to tell you, like I say about security culture, the cheapest way to secure your company as a founder or executive is to promote that as a cultural value of your company. Here at Fuco, we value our customers' privacy and we take care of their data. That's a cultural value, mm -hmm. right? And if you say that as a founder, people want to belong. They want to be part of the in-group. Mm. And so if you set, this is a cultural standard at our company, this is the way we behave, then people will hold themselves accountable to that. They'll even tattle on their friends. Oh, so-and-so didn't change their password because that puts them in the in-group. Whereas if you have a culture where it's, oh, we got to change our stupid passwords, the stupid security thing. Now, in order to feel like part of the group and to be more like you're the founder, they're going to treat it with disdain too. Wow. And so if you want to the cheapest way to secure your company is pretend you care and the, and your employees are going to mimic that and you're going to mm. build a culture that cares about security, right? And it's exactly the same with diversity, equity, and inclusion. If you care and you act like you care and then your employees will get that, will get that. Mm. They too will care and they will want to mirror those values. I love that image I have of, hey, I'm if I align myself with what the CEO founder is saying, I am I'm in with the culture. So in other words, it's explicit, it's stated, it is encouraged, it is named versus the whole, this gray area. I, yes, I'm not a racist, but... Yeah. Having spent zero time thinking about it, I'm going to go with <laughs> I'm not, but yeah. Wow. So yes, so this is why when I talk to founders, talk to CTOs, I tell them, listen, super early in the race. The day you wake up and you're like, oh, we should do DEI and you've got 20 white dudes coding for you, good luck finding the pe person of color or the trans yeah. or the, the woman even joining, wanting to join your team. Yeah. yeah. You've probably tech broed your culture and galvanized it to the point where you can't actually address it. Years ago, when I was at Sumo Logic, the CEO held a meeting with all of the women of the company. And we all fit in the boardroom. It was probably 200 employees in the company at the time. And, and all the women fit in the boardroom with the CEO. And a guy who I is still a good friend of mine, who I adore, a wonderful human being, goes walking by the boardroom and he looks in and he's shocked at what he sees. And he pulls out his phone and then my pocket vibrates and I've got a text message from him. And he's, is that a meeting with only with all women? And I just laughed and laughed. And then afterwards I said to him, I said, you know how many meetings I walk by in this building every day that are all men? Like almost all of them. Like it's completely unremarkable to see if you had walked by that boardroom and it was all dudes, you would have just kept walking. And yet this was a jaw dropping moment for you. Yeah. And again, we all fit in the boardroom where we were all hearing about how the company cared very much about such things. And like, then how come we all fit in here? Considering that meeting, it's one thing to have people accept that you are trans 
or that you let's say you ch- you changed genders is that is that appropriate yeah what is your sense with women for instance if you're in a if you're in a meeting with all women surely there are people in there who don't are they uncomfortable is it weird what happens this is a great but sometimes complicated conversation so in general as a general rule of thumb women have been way more accepting of me and my transition than men like way more a couple of times that i have had incidences where i have been harassed in public for my transness it has been women who have come to my aid it in the workplace out in public and throughout women have been my strongest allies in transition hands down as a general rule are there some women absolutely who have problems with trans people and absolutely it is far rarer in my personal experience far more rare i think that i i I have all sorts of theories i'm not an expert other than my own experience i've done no academic research on this i've done no but i think most other women see me and they see that i present myself as a woman i often i'm not today but i often wear makeup i often dress pretty femme I use feminine pronouns. They see men treating me and not taking me that seriously. And I'm in the same camp. I'm in the same boat with them. It's regardless of how I got in that boat, here I am being condescended to too. So there's that solidarity there in the engineering culture where this is not done well. There is that solidarity and empathy then that gets felt and shared across. Yeah. Yeah. And so by and large, it has been women who have been my biggest supporters, hands down. Where it gets tricky and where I have really tried, and I'm by no means perfect at this, where I have really tried to put in the work on my own, there are women's issues that are not my issues in the sense that I don't menstruate and I'm never going to get pregnant. It's just not even a possibility, right? Now, that doesn't mean that I don't care deeply about Mm -hmm. reproductive rights and what Mm -hmm. I do and donate time and money accordingly. But Am I the best person in the room to speak to those things? Probably not. Unless I'm the only one in the room willing to do so. Mm. In which case, I absolutely will. But gosh, I would really prefer to defer to someone who has lived experience in this area. And that is a dimension, for instance, not being able to fall pregnant is a dimension, regardless of gender identification, that is shared amongst a group that really should understand that you do not share in the, what the other group is going through, but you can fight for it and stand by them. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And it's, I would say you know, there's a huge portion of women's issues that are relevant to me, but there's some that are not directly relevant to me. And so it's my job, I feel personally, I'm not saying this of other people, if there's another trans woman who doesn't feel this is your job, don't let me make it your job. But I feel it's my job to educate myself about those issues and stand up for them as much as possible. But it's also my job to the moment someone who shows up in the room who has more lived experience than me, who has an opinion, to shut the fuck up and let them talk. Isn't that just common sense? This is common decency, right? In general. What one would think. Wow. So do you, what would you say to, to the founder or the CTO, the engineering org that is struggling with DEI 
And I think probably the most common, the common defense about this is what I said, A, is I have no problem with where people are and who they are, and I just want the best. I'm like, okay, that's a delicious shield to hide behind. Or just general ignorance or general complacency. What? Yeah, there's, look, there's a few things that, I'll, that I'd say. It's, I wish I had one pithy thing, but let me hit a couple of bullet points. One, you need all the help you can get. And in particular, in information security, there's been 0% unemployment in information security for over a decade. There's like four times as many open jobs as there are practitioners. If we're headed into a big recession and it cuts that number of jobs in half, there's still going to be twice as many information security jobs as there are practitioners, right? There is no job insecurity in information security. And most security people I know are overworked and stressed out and they all need help. And so don't shut out half the help population from potentially being able to come help you out. Mm. Number, Number two, I remember at, uh, at Sumo Logic at one point, we did really good. We didn't so do so great on gender diversity. We were, and we could have been better with people of color, racial diversity, but we were actually better at racial diversity than we were at gender diversity. I think we had more gay men at Sumo than we had women. So sexual minorities weren't a problem. It was just like, it was just really women that we seemed to have a hard time. And then one day I remember laughing. I said, 90% of engineering has a degree in computer science from Stanford or MIT. I said, so they all took the same classes from the same professors. They all read the same books. They all know the same jokes. They, I'm like, that's not diversity. Even if like they're from 20 different countries. That's not, there's no diversity of thought there. Everybody's going to look at that problem and think about it the same way. Cause they, they all took the same classes from the same people at Stanford. They all like, we don't have anybody in there who's thinking about that problem from a different perspective. I, one time I drove a long way to work cause I had a server crash and I needed to go in physically and reboot it. And I drove like an hour and a half on the weekend to go in and I realized I had forgotten my badge and I broke into the building through the receiving dock and I found a door. I walked around to the receiving dock and I turned around and sure enough, there was a door that was open and I got into the receiver, the shipping and receiving room in the back of the building. And there was a drop ceiling and a cabinet. And I just climbed up the cabinet and went over the drop ceiling and down the other side and went and rebooted my server. And then I came in on Monday and I went to the head of facilities and I explained to him how I got into the building. And he said, whoever would have thought of that? Well, Anyone who really wanted to get into the building. And so if you had never mm. driven an hour and a half and didn't want yes. to drive an hour and a half back and then an hour and a half back again, you wouldn't be that motivated. Oops. And if you never were the only woman in the room, if you were never were the only person of your gender in the room, you have no idea what that feels like, what it feels like. And so women, people of color, they're going to approach problems intuitively in different ways, you're going to get like different thought processes. And I think in security, I can say about things differently is really key to being a good security person. Because again, oh, who would have thought to do that? Clearly not you. Like clearly it takes a different mindset to think of that. And when everybody all took the same classes and they all had a similar background and a similar experience of being a white guy on a sports team, and they all think about the, they're all in this pathway, of course, they're going to come up with similar solutions most of the time. And, and so 
just from a pragmatic perspective, people who have different ways of solving problems and different approaches and who think about things differently on your team is going to be good for the diversity of thought. So you don't want to ignore half the population when you need help. You want people who think differently and can approach the problem differently. You want people who have different skills. Frankly, you need a different set of social skills to navigate the world as a person of color or a trans person or a woman than you need. It's a different set. And so there's just so much opportunity there that people pass up because of their preconceptions. And let me tap into the preconceptions for a second. I think that the problem that we have with gender issues in our society, in our culture, largely comes down to what I said earlier. There's two different sets of etiquette, right? If you're a man, it's okay to say some things and not, it's not okay to say other things. And if you're a woman, that list is different. If you're a man, there's a certain way that you can behave. You can pat people on the back. You can do these things. And if you're a woman, you can't do that. It's just not polite. Mm. And so by gendering everything, by having two sets of rules, one set of rules for men and another set of rules for women, those rules clearly advantage men. Mm. And they put women in a double bind constantly. And a lot of people of color in similar double binds, right? It's you need to be assertive unless you're a woman or a black guy or what, in which case assertive becomes magically aggressive. It's, whoa, that ooh, just changed a few letters, but wow, that's a big, there's a big difference there. Assertive, aggressive, and all it takes to have one or the other is boobs or not. And so, well... I've had to accept and I've had to give, unfortunately, I've had to give this advice to women for years now. You're just going to have to be seen as a bitch. They're going to, they're going to like, how do I say this without them thinking I'm, but you don't, you're going to say it and they're going to think you're a bitch. They're going to call you a bitch. They're going to text their bitch to all their friends. That's just, we just have to deal with it, hon. There's literally no, it's a double bot. We cannot have this conversation and stay within the rules of femininity. The rules of femininity will not allow us to be someone's boss. The rules of femininity will not allow us to do all sorts of things. We are going to be rude by female standards. And so we either accept those standards and relegate ourselves to second-class citizen, or we say, okay, people are going to think I'm rude. People are going to think I'm shrill. People are going to think I'm aggressive. People are all of these qualities that were celebrated in Joe Pepin are demonized for Joan Pepin. And so I think the first thing that CTOs, founders, any hiring manager, right, needs to understand is that you hold people to different standards. You do. And I like, I still do. I'm aware of it. I work at it every day and I still catch myself doing it. And so I guarantee you a thousand percent, if you haven't done the work, if you're not thinking of Oh, you do it all the time. Yeah. But how can that safety be nurtured, instituted? It's like the stranger danger, the, I don't know how to do, I don't know how to handle this. Therefore, this situation is dangerous. Yeah. And then pe people who feel threatened, obviously, act in most cases like a doofus. Yeah, it's, gosh, I wish I had an easy answer. Th this feeling of safety, like any culture, like any feeling in a culture, comes from the top comes from the leaders of that culture. Now, some cultures are very hierarchical and the leader is very clear. It's the founders, the two co-founders, the CEO and the CTO, they're the cultural leaders of the, right? 
In some companies, it's less clear. Maybe the CTO isn't there all that much. Whoever is the visible, maybe, and I've been in companies where the real cultural leader was the smartest engineer, the one who, you know, right? And, but whoever your cultural leader or leaders are need to perpetuate a culture of safety and inclusiveness or it won't happen. It's that it cannot be a pattern that, that I see that it should really be an anti-pattern, but it happens over and over again. I don't worry about DEI. I hired a director for that. And it's the same thing. I don't worry about security. I hired a CISO. Exactly. Okay, great. Well, now, is that CISO going to get any budget from you? Is that DEI director going to get any budget from you? Or is it like, that's we have a department called that. So if they don't do it, I guess they're not doing their job. And compare and contrast. You have a sales team and you have an engineering team. I've seen over and over again, company leaders address the whole company about things that we need to change in our sales culture and things we need to ch- things that we need to do in engineering, how address the whole company about on half the company standard going, why is he telling me about this? I never interacted with a customer in my life. Why is he telling me we have to focus on the customer? Like all I do is keep the servers up. All I do is empty the trash baskets. All I do is like, why is he talking to me about this yet? It's so important. Sales is so important to the company. I'm going to make sure everybody hears it. Getting this product out by the deadline by that we promised our customers is so important. We're going to have three all hands about it. And we're going to bring in the janitorial staff. Everybody's going to stand there and listen to how we all have to buckle down and get this product released, even though half of us have nothing to do with it. And yet, well, security, inclusion, I have a department for that. So tell me about the founding then. In the context of challenges of diversity, being trans in the engineering community, you founded a company. Yeah, you know, uh, I am pretty privileged. I joined Sumo Logic very early as employee number 11. I was there for five years. They had a great exit, which I did very well. I spent a little time at Nike, then I went on to Auth0 and joined there when they were still a, a smaller company and rode with them through like exponential growth. They had a fantastic exit. I did really well. And I, I made a, I helped make a bunch of money for a bunch of venture capitalists. And I built a reputation in the tech community and in the venture community as being a serious senior executive who was at two unicorns that both had great exits. And so I was able to leverage that privilege and that reputation into founding a company. And and I, it's not that raising funds was easy. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. But I had access. I had the ability to get some of the biggest venture capitalists in Silicon Valley to at least take my call. Like I, I still had to prove that I had an idea and all of that, but I was able to get meetings that I think would have been very difficult for a lot of other people to think to get those meetings. And so I, I had the privilege of opportunity. I then had to take advantage of that opportunity. But, and one of my goals in founding Zero Wall was to prove that this could be done without all of the same pattern matching, that I could found a company without a degree from Stanford or MIT and without an MBA, and that I could hire people who did not have a degree from Stanford and, and did not have an MBA, and that I could hire people who were diverse. And that we would work hard and that we would create a good, great company and a great product. And, and so that's been part of my mission. And I've been upfront about that with my investors from the beginning. They, they know who I am. And so that's been part of our mission is to challenge the status quo 
because let's be honest, the status quo isn't working, right? If security was working, I wouldn't be constantly getting inbound emails from press asking me to comment on the latest breach. And the way we do security is not working, right? The way that we do diversity and inclusion, it's getting better, It's but it's not working. And like I said, a, a bunch of times in this conversation alone, in order to change those things, you, the tone needs to come from the top. And so let me found a company, let me be at the top and let me set the example and, and at least give it my best shot and see if we can in fact prove that you can do this differently and still be successful. VCs, understandably, they pattern match. They say, what type of person has gotten us a return on our investment before? It tends to be a person with this type of background and this type of degree and this type of, so they're going to be more likely to bet on that type of person. If I just made some venture capitalists more likely to bet on a new profile, if I gave them a new pattern to match, victory. Do you know how many trans people are founding companies and kicking ass? I do not. Wow. For reals, wow. I, and I don't know how to find out. I, but I don't want to make the claim. I suspect that I'm the first trans woman to go raise $2 million on her own from Silicon Valley venture firms. I suspect I'm the first and only one to do that. I don't know. There's no database, right? I can't go just look it up. There's no like trans in TMDB or something, right? <laughs> as far as the company goes, I know you showed me a preview, I think, or was it a release candidate of the app? Yeah, that's, it's a little bit of both. It's a version that we've got a couple of people kicking the tires and using, right? Product right now is non-interactive. You do your assessment, which is interactive, and then our algorithm produces a bunch of assets and then we can email them to you. We like to present them. We like to walk people through them. But, and we do have a portal that's not highly scalable yet where that does uh, that, where you can, where some of those assets are generated automatically and in real time where you can, and we're working constantly to improve that and mm -hmm. add, take a lot of this sort of batch functionality right now and make that more real time SaaS interactive as opposed to our batch methodology right now. Um, and The thing that I, what I remember, which was great for me as a CTO type to look at was your app kind of helped me see what I should work on next. Yeah. The visualization of our, th our threat model diagram. Yeah. Thank you. That's a piece of our intellectual property that we're super proud of and that lots of people seem to really appreciate. And that evolved from it. What I call it, it is a whiteboard diagram. If I went into a company, here's what our product does in a nutshell. If I went into a company as a consultant, you probably couldn't afford me at my hourly rate as an individual is just astronomical. But hey, if you did, I'd go in there and I'd ask you a bunch of questions about, do you back up your data? Do you, who has access to that data? Who has read access? Who has write access? How do you enforce that? Is there anyone's job to check on that from time to time and make sure that's up to date? I'd ask a bunch of those sort of open-ended questions, which is what our assessment is. And then I would grab a whiteboard marker and I'd go up to the whiteboard and I'd draw a picture of the data flow. I'd say, okay, so you've got a couple front end nodes that are connected to the internet and they write, read data and I'd draw out the data flow and I'd start talking about what are you doing to protect those different parts of your infrastructure. That's what our, that's what zero wall, the application does. We ask you a bunch of questions about how data moves through your organization, what types of data, how you handle it, what technologies and processes you have in place. And then we draw a high level data flow diagram of how that data moves through your company. And we draw overlays in that of how you're protecting that data. 
So we say, for instance, your employees are connected to the internet. What things do you have in place that are protecting your employees from the internet? Have you trained them? Do you, do they have antivirus? Do they have detection and response tools on their laptops? Do they have, are you running browser isolate? Like, what are you doing to protect your employees from the internet? Now let's assume that despite your best efforts, one of your employees got compromised. What are you doing to protect your data from a compromised employee? Okay, now you've got a compromised employee. They've got their hands on the data. Are you doing anything to make it harder for them to exfiltrate that data? Are you doing anything to, right? And then we take all of this and we put it in a big sort of Visio style network diagram. Which mine eye has beholded. Yes. Which mine eye beheld. It's beautiful. <laughs> and yeah, it lets you, particularly when there's like a glaring hole, it really stands out, right? Like yeah. we had a customer who did so much right on the back end, backing up their data all this stuff, basically everything they did in the cloud, everything they did in Amazon was great. Their employees were running around on unpatched laptops with no MDM, with no training. And it was very evident on our map, like employees were a huge hole. And then come to find out as we're going through reading out their assessment. Yeah, the whole reason they came to us is they had just had a huge incident where one of their employees had been compromised. Yeah, I, I, like I said, the types of apps that are thoughtfully and meticulously educating people on what to do next, man, those are so awesome. And I loved how what I saw about Zero Wall, where a lot of the things I had been talking about in Shield is considering your competitive advantage through intellectual property, compliance, threat modeling, internal threats, external threats, all these things were almost embodied, almost exactly embodied in what I saw in Zero Wall. So I think we're out of time. It's been what? fantastic. I would welcome the opportunity to do this anytime you'll have me. Thank you, Joan, because I am going to get off this call and I'm going to book you again. So I really appreciate the time. Likewise, this has been great. Thank you, Joan. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. 